Part 4, Chapter 3 of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter 4, In Cowboy Land, Part 3. In addition to my private duties, I sometimes served as deputy sheriff for the northern end of our county. The sheriff and I crisscrossed on our public and private relations. He often worked for me as a hired hand at the same time that I was his deputy. His name, or at least the name he went by, was Bill Jones. And as there were in the neighborhood several Bill Joneses, three, seven Bill Joneses, Texas Bill Jones, and the like, the sheriff was known as Hell-Roaring Bill Jones. He was a thorough frontiersman, excellent in all kinds of emergencies, and a very game man. I became much attached to him. He was a thoroughly good citizen when sober, but he got a little wild when drunk. Unfortunately, towards the end of his life, he got to drinking very heavily. When, in 1905, John Burroughs and I visited the Yellowstone Park, poor Bill Jones, very much down in the world, was driving a team in Gardner outside the park. I had looked forward to seeing him, and he was equally anxious to see me. He kept telling his cronies of our intimacy, and of what we were going to do together, and then got drinking, and the result was, by the time I reached Gardner, he had to be carried out and left in the sagebush. When I came out of the park, I sent on in advance to tell them to be sure to keep him sober, and they did so. But it was a rather sad interview. The old fellow had gone to pieces and soon after I left he got lost in a blizzard and was dead when they found him. Bill Jones was a gunfighter, and also a good man with his fists. On one occasion there was an election in town. There had been many threats that the party of disorder would impart section hands from the neighboring railroad stations to down our side. I did not reach Medora, the forlorn little cattle town which was our county seat, until the election was well under way. I then asked one of my friends if there had been any disorder. Bill Jones was standing by. Disorder? Hell! said my friend. Bill Jones just stood there with one hand on his gun and the other pointing over towards the new jail whenever any man who didn't have a right to vote came near the polls. There was only one of them who tried to vote, and Bill knocked him down. Lord, said my friend meditatively, the way that man fell. Well, struck in Bill Jones, if he hadn't fell, I'd have walked round behind him to see what was propping him up. In the days when I lived on the ranch, I usually spent most of the winter in the east, and when I returned in the early spring, I was always interested in finding out what had happened since my departure. On one occasion, I was met by Bill Jones and Sylvain Ferris, and in the course of our conversation, they mentioned the lunatic. This led to a question on my part, and Sylvain Ferris began the story. Well, you see, he was on a train, and he shot the newsboy. At first, they weren't going to do anything to him, for they thought that he just had it in for the newsboy. But then somebody said, Why, he's plumb crazy, and he's liable to shoot any of us. And then they threw him off the train. It was here at Medora, and they asked if anyone would take care of him, and Bill Jones said he would, because he was the sheriff, and the jail had two rooms, and he was living in one, and would put the lunatic in the other. Here Bill Jones interrupted. <laughs> yes, and more fool me. I wouldn't take charge of another lunatic if the whole county asked me. Why, with the air of a man announcing an astonishing discovery, that lunatic didn't have his right senses. He wouldn't eat till me and Snyder got him down on the shavings and made him eat. 
Snyder was a huge, happy-go-lucky, kind-hearted Pennsylvania Dutchman, and was Bill Jones' chief deputy. Bill continued, You know, Snyder's soft-hearted, he is, and he'd been thinking that the lunatic looked peaked, and he'd take him out for an airing. Then the boys would get joshing him as to how much start he had given him over the prairie and catch him again. Apparently, the amount of the start given the lunatic depended on the amount of the bet to which the joshing led up. I asked Bill what he would have done if Snyder hadn't have caught the lunatic. This was evidently a new idea, and he responded that Snyder always did catch him. Well, but suppose he hadn't caught him. Well, said Bill Jones, if Snyder hadn't have caught the lunatic, I'd have wailed hell out of Snyder. Under these circumstances, Snyder ran his best, and always did catch the patient. It must not be gathered from this that the lunatic was badly treated. He was well treated. He became greatly attached to both Bill Jones and Snyder, and he objected strongly when, after the frontier theory of treatment of the insane had reached a full trial, he was finally set off to the territorial capital. It was merely that all the relations of life in that place and day were so managed as to give ample opportunity for the expressions of individuality, whether in sheriff or ranchman. The local practical joker once attempted to have some fun at the expense of the lunatic, and Bill Jones described the result. You know Bixby, don't you? Well, with deep disapproval, Bixby thinks he is funny, he does. He'd come up, and he'd wake up that lunatic at night, and I'd have to get up and soothe him. I fixed Bixby all right, though. I fastened a rope on the latch, and next time Bixby came, I let the lunatic out on him. He bit off most Bixby's nose, and I learned Bixby. Bill Jones had been unconventional in other relations besides that of Sheriff. He had once casually mentioned to me that he had served on the police force of Bismarck, but he had left because he beat the mayor over the head with his gun one day. He added, The mayor, he didn't mind it, but the superintendent of the police said he guessed I'd better resign. His feeling, obviously, was that the superintendent of police was a marinette, unfit to take the large views of life. It was while with Bill Jones that I first made acquaintance with Seth Bullock. Seth was at that time sheriff in the Black Hills District, and a man he had wanted, a horse thief, I finally got. I was being, at the time, deputy sheriff two or three hundred miles to the north. The man came by a nickname which I will call Crazy Steve. A year or two afterwards I received a letter asking about him from his uncle, a thoroughly respectable man in a western state and later this uncle and I met at Washington when I was president and he was a United States senator. It was some time after Steve's capture that I went down to Deadwood on business. Sylvain Ferris and I on horseback, while Bill Jones drove the wagon. At a little town, Spearfish, I think, after crossing the last 80 or 90 miles of Gumbo Prairies, we met Seth Bullock. We had had rather a rough trip and had lain out for a fortnight, so I suppose we looked somewhat unkempt. Seth received us with rather distant courtesy at first, but unbent when he found out who we were, remarking, You see, by your looks, I thought you were some sort of tin horn gambling outfit, and that I might have to keep an eye on you. He then inquired after the capture of Steve, with a little of the air of one sportsman, when another has shot a quail that either might have claimed. My bird, I believe. Later, Seth Bullock became, and has ever remained, one of my staunchest and most valued friends. He served as marshal for South Dakota under me as president. When, after the close of my term, I went to Africa, on getting back to Europe, I cabled Seth Bullock to bring over Mrs. Bullock and meet me in London, which he did, 
By that time I felt I had just had to meet my own people, who spoke my neighborhood dialect. After serving as deputy sheriff, I was impressed with the advantage the officer of the law has over ordinary wrongdoers, provided he thoroughly knows his own mind. There are exceptional outlaws, men with a price on their heads and of remarkable prowess, who are utterly indifferent to taking life, and whose warfare against society is as open as that of a savage on the warpath. The law officer has no advantage whatever over these men save what his own prowess may or may not give him. Such a man was Billy the Kid, the notorious man-killer and desperado of New Mexico, who was himself finally slain by a friend of mine, Pat Garrett, whom, when I was president, I made collector of customs at El Paso. But the ordinary criminal, even when murderously inclined, feels just a moment's hesitation as to whether he cares to kill an officer of the law engaged in his duty. I took in more than one man who was probably a better man than I was with both rifle and revolver, but in each case I knew just what I wanted to do, and, like David Harum, I did it first. Whereas the fraction of a second that the other man hesitated put him in a position where it was useless for him to resist. I owe more than I can ever express to the West, which of course means to the men and women I met in the West. There were a few people of bad type in my neighborhood, and that would be true of every group of men, even in a theological seminary, but I could not speak with too great affection and respect of the great majority of my friends, the hard-working men and women who dwelt for a space of perhaps a 150 miles along the Little Missouri. I was always as welcome at their houses as they were at mine. Everybody worked, everybody was willing to help everybody else, and yet nobody asked any favors. The same thing was true of the people whom I got to know 50 miles east and 50 miles west of my own range, and of the men I met on the roundups. They soon accepted me as a friend and fellow worker who stood on an equal footing with them, and I believe that most of them have kept their feeling for me ever since. No guests were ever more welcome at the White House than these old friends of the cattle ranches and the cow camps, the men with whom I had ridden the long circle and eaten at the tailboard of a chuck wagon, whenever they turned up at Washington during my presidency. I remember one of them who appeared at Washington one day just before lunch, a huge, powerful man whom, when I knew him, had been distinctly a fighting character. It happened that, on that day, another old friend, the British ambassador, Mr. Bryce, was among those coming to lunch. Just before I went in, I turned to my cowpuncher friend and said to him with great solemnity, Remember, Jim, that if you shot at the feet of the British ambassador to make him dance, it would be likely to cause international complications. To which Jim responded with unaffected horror, Why, Colonel, I shouldn't think of it. I shouldn't think of it. Not only did the men and women whom I met in the cow country quite unconsciously help me by the insight which working and living with them enabled me to get into the mind and soul of the average American of the right type, but they helped me in another way. I made up my mind that the men were of just the kind whom it would be well to have with me if ever it became necessary to go to war. When the Spanish War came, I gave this thought practical realization. Fortunately, Worcester and Remington, with pen and pencil, have made these men live as long as our literature does. I have sometimes been asked if Worcester's Virginian is not overdrawn. Why, one of the men I have mentioned in this chapter was in all essentials the Virginian in real life, not only in his force, but in his charm. Half of the men I worked with or played with, and half of the men who soldiered with me afterwards in my regiment, might have walked out of Worcester's stories or Remington's pictures. There were bad characters in the western country at that time, of course, 
and under the conditions of life they were probably more dangerous than if they had been elsewhere. I hardly ever had any difficulty, however. I never went into a saloon, and in the little hotels I kept out of the bar room, unless, as sometimes happened, the bar room was the only room on the lower floor except the dining room. I always endeavored to keep out of a quarrel, until self-respect forbade me my making any further effort to avoid it, and I rarely had even the semblance of trouble. Of course, amusing incidents occurred now and then. Usually, these took place when I was hunting lost horses, for in hunting lost horses I was ordinarily alone, and occasionally had to travel a hundred or a hundred and fifty miles away from my own country. On one such occasion I reached a little cow town long after dark, stabled my horse in an empty outbuilding, and when I reached the hotel was informed in response to my request for a bed that I could have the last one left, as there was only one other man in it. The room to which I had shown contained two double beds. One contained two men fast asleep, the other only one man also asleep. This man proved to be a friend, one of the Bill Joneses whom I had previously mentioned. I undressed according to the fashion of the day and place. That is, I put my trousers, boots, chaps, and gun down next to the bed, and turned in. A couple of hours later I was awakened by the door being thrown open and a lantern flashing in my face. The light gleamed on the muzzle of a cocked forty-five. Another man said to the lantern-bearer, It ain't him! The next moment my bedfellow was covered with two guns and addressed, Now, Bill, don't make a fuss, but come along quiet. I'm not thinking of making a fuss, said Bill. That's right, was the answer. We're your friends. We don't want to hurt you. We just want you to come along. You know why. And Bill pulled up his trousers and boots and walked out with them. Up to this time there had not been a sound from the other bed. Now a match was scratched, a candle lit, and one of the men in the other bed looked round the room. At this point I committed the breach of etiquette of asking questions. I wonder why they took Bill, I said. There was no answer. I repeated, I wonder why they took Bill. Well, the man said with the candle dryly, I reckon they wanted him. And with that he blew out the candle, and conversation ceased. Later I discovered that Bill, in a fit of playfulness, had held up the Northern Pacific train at a nearby station by shooting at the feet of the conductor to make him dance. This was purely a joke on Bill's part, but the Northern Pacific people possessed a less robust sense of humor, and on their complaint the United States Marshal was sent after Bill, on the ground that by delaying the train he had interfered with the mails. The only time I ever had serious trouble was at an even more primitive little hotel than the one in question. It was also on an occasion when I was out after lost horses. Below, the hotel had merely a bar room, a dining room, and a lean-to kitchen. Above was a loft with fifteen or twenty beds in it. It was late in the evening when I reached the place. I heard one or two shots in the bar room as I came up, and I disliked going in. But there was nowhere else to go, and it was a cold night. Inside the room were several men, who, including the bartender, were wearing the kind of smile worn by men who are making believe to like what they don't like. A shabby individual in a broad hat with a cocked gun in each hand was walking up and down the floor, talking with strident profanity. He had evidently been shooting at the clock, which had two or three holes in its face. He was not a bad man of the really dangerous type, the true man-killer, but he was an objectionable character, a would-be bad man, a bully who, for the moment, was having things all his own way. As soon as he saw me, he hailed me as four eyes, in reference to my spectacles, and said, Four eyes is going to treat. 
I joined in the laugh, and got behind the stove and sat down, thinking to escape notice. He followed me, however, and though I tried to pass it off as a jest, this merely made him more offensive, and he stood leaning over me, a gun in each hand, using very foul language. He was foolish to stand so near, and, moreover, his heels were close together, so that his position was unstable. Accordingly, in response to his reiterated command that I should set up the drinks, I said, Well, if I've got to, I've got to, and rose looking past him. As I rose, I struck, quick and hard, with my right, just to one side of the point of his jaw, hitting with my left as I straightened out, and then again with my right. He fired his guns, but I did not know whether this was merely a convulsive action of his hands, or whether he was trying to shoot at me. When he went down, he struck the corner of the bar with his head. It was not a case in which you could afford to take chances, and if he had moved, as I was about to drop on his ribs with my knees, but he was senseless. I took away his guns, and the other people in the room, who were now loud in their denunciation of him, hustled him out and put him in a shed. I got dinner as soon as possible, sitting in a corner of the dining room away from the windows, and then went upstairs to the bed where it was so dark that there would be no chance of anyone shooting at me from the outside. However, nothing happened. When my assailant came to, he went down to the station and left on a freight. As I have said, most of the men in my regiment were just such men as those I knew in the ranch country. Indeed, some of my ranch friends were in the regiment. Fred Herrig, the forest ranger, for instance, in whose company I shot my biggest mountain ram. After the regiment was disbanded, the careers of certain of the men were diversified by odd incidents. Our relations were of the friendliest, and, as they explained, they felt that as if I was a father to them. The manifestations of this feeling were sometimes less attractive than the phrase sounded, as it was chiefly used by the few who were behaving like very bad children indeed. The great majority of the men, when the regiment disbanded, took up the businesses of their lives, where they had dropped it a few months previously, and these men merely tried to help me, or help one another as the occasion arose. No man ever had more cause to be proud of his regiment than I had of mine, both in war and in peace. But there was a minority among them who, in certain ways, were unsuited for a life of peaceful regularity, although often enough they had been first-class soldiers. It was from one of these men that letters came with a stereotyped opening which always caused my heart to sink. Dear Colonel, I write to you because I am in trouble. The trouble might take almost any form. One correspondent continued, I did not take the horse, but they say I did. Another complained that his mother-in-law had put him in jail for bigamy. In the case of another, the incident was more markworthy. I will call him Grito. He wrote me a letter beginning, Dear Colonel, I write to you because I am in trouble. I have shot a lady in the eye. But Colonel, I was not shooting at the lady. I was shooting at my wife, which he apparently regarded as sufficient excuse as between men of the world. I answered that I drew the line at shooting at ladies and did not hear any more of the incident for several years. Then, while I was president, a member of the regiment, Major Llewellyn, who was federal district attorney under me in New Mexico, wrote me a letter filled, as his letters usually were, with bits of interesting gossip about the comrades. It ran in part as follows. Since I last wrote to you, Commander Ritchie has killed a man in Colorado. I understand that the comrade was playing a poker game, and the man sat into the game and used such language that Comrade Ritchie had to shoot. Comrade Webb has killed two men in Beaver, Arizona. Comrade Webb is in the Forest Service, and the killing was in the line of professional duty. I was out at the penitentiary the other day and saw Comrade Grito, who, 
you may remember, was put there for shooting his sister-in-law. This was the first information I had as to the identity of the lady who was shot in the eye. Since he was in there, Comrade Boyne has run off to Old Mexico with his, Grito's, wife, and the people of Grant County think he ought to be let out. Evidently, the sporting instincts of the people of Grant County had been roused, and they felt that, as Comrade Boyne had had a fair start, the other comrades should be let out to see what would happen. The men of the regiment always enthusiastically helped me when I was running for office. On one occasion, Buck Taylor of Texas accompanied me on a trip and made a speech for me. The crowd took to his speech from the beginning, and so did I, until the peroration, which ran as follows. My fellow citizens, vote for my colonel. Vote for my colonel, and he will lead you as he led us like sheep to the slaughter. This hardly seemed a tribute to my military skill, but it delighted the crowd, and as far as I could tell, did nothing but good. On another tour, when I was running for vice president, a member of the regiment who was along on the train got into a discussion with a populist editor, who had expressed an unfavorable estimate of my character, and, in the course of the discussion, shot the editor, not fatally. We had to leave him to be tried, and, as he had no money, I left him $150 to hire counsel having borrowed the money from Senator Walcott of Colorado, who was also with me. After election, I received from my friend a letter running, Dear Colonel, I find I will not have to use that $150 you lent me, as we have elected our candidate for district attorney, so I have used it to settle a horse transaction in which I unfortunately became involved. A few weeks later, however, I received a heartbroken letter, setting forth the fact that the district attorney, whom he evidently felt to be a cold-blooded formalist, had put him in jail. Then the affair dropped out of sight until two or three years later, when, as president, I visited a town in another state, and the leaders of the delegation which received me included both my correspondent and the editor, now fast friends, and both of them ardent supporters of mine. At one of the regimental reunions, a man, who had been an excellent soldier, in greeting me mentioned how glad he was that the judge had led him out in time to get to the reunion. I asked what was the matter, and he replied with some surprise. Why, Colonel, don't you know? I had a difficulty with a um, gentleman, and, er, well, I killed the gentleman. But you could see that the judge thought it was all right, or he wouldn't have let me go. Waving the latter point, I said, How did it happen? How did you do it? Misinterpreting my question as showing an interest only in the technique of the performance, the ex-puncher replied, With a thirty-eight on a forty-five frame, Colonel. I chuckled over the answer, and it became proverbial with my family and some of my friends, including Seth Bullock. When I was shot at Milwaukee, Seth Bullock wired an inquiry to which I responded that it was all right, that the weapon was merely a thirty-eight on a forty-five frame. The telegram in some way became public and puzzled outsiders. By the way, both the men of my regiment and the friends I had made in the old days in the West were themselves a little puzzled at the interest shown in my making my speech after being shot. This is what they expected, what they accepted as the right thing for a man to do under the circumstances, a thing the non-performance of which would have been discreditable, rather than the performance being creditable. They would not have expected a man to leave a battle, for instance, because of being wounded in such fashion. They saw no reason why he should abandon a less important and less risky duty. One of the best soldiers in my regiment was a huge man whom I made marshal of a Rocky Mountain state. He had spent his hot and lusty youth on the frontier during its Viking age, and at that time had naturally taken part in incidents which seemed queer to men 
accustomed to die decently of zymotic diseases. I told him that an effort would doubtless be made to prevent his confirmation by the Senate, and therefore that I wanted to know all the facts in his case. Had he played faro? He had, but it was when everybody played faro, and he had never played a brace game. Had he killed anybody? Yes, but it was in Dodge City, on occasions when he was deputy marshal or town marshal at a time when Dodge City, now the most peaceful of communities, was the toughest town on the continent, and crowded with man-killing outlaws and road agents, and he produced telegrams from judges of high character testifying to the need of the actions he had taken. Finally, I said, Now, Ben, how did you lose that half of your ear? To which, looking rather shy, he responded, Well, Colonel, it was bit off. How did that happen, Ben? Well, you see, I was sent to arrest a gentleman, and him and me mixed it up, and he bit off my ear. What did you do to the gentleman, Ben? And Ben, looking more coy than ever, responded, Well, Colonel, we broke about even. I forbore to inquire what variety of mayhem he had committed on the gentleman. After considerable struggle, I got him confirmed by the Senate, and he made one of the best marshals in the entire service, exactly as he had already made one of the best soldiers in the regiment, and I never wished to see a better citizen, nor a man in whom I would more implicitly trust in every way. When, in 1900, I was nominated for vice president, I was sent by the National Committee on a trip into the states of the High Plains and the Rocky Mountains. These had all gone overwhelmingly for Mr. Bryan on the free silver issue four years previously, and it was thought that I, because of my knowledge of and acquaintanceship with the people, might accomplish something towards bringing them back into line. It was an interesting trip, and the monotony usually attendant upon such a campaign of political speaking was diversified in vivid fashion by occasional hostile audiences. One or two of the meetings ended in riots. One meeting was finally broken up by a mob. Everybody fought so that the speaking had to stop. Soon after this, we reached another town where we were told there might be trouble. Here the local committee included an old and valued friend, a two-gun man of repute, who was not in the least quarrelsome, but who always kept his word. We marched round to the local opera house, which was packed with a mass of men, many of them rather rough-looking. My friend, the two-gun man, sat immediately behind me, a gun on each hip, his arms folded, looking at the audience, fixing his gaze with instant intentness on any section of the house from which there came so much as a whisper. The audience listened to me with rapt attention. At the end, with a pride in my rhetorical powers which proceeded from a misunderstanding of the situation, I remarked to the chairman, I held that audience well. There wasn't an interruption. To which the chairman replied, Interruption? Well, I guess not. Seth sent round word that if any son of a gun peeped, he'd kill him. There was one bit of frontier philosophy which I would like to see imitated in more advanced communities. Certain crimes of revolting baseness and cruelty were never forgiven. But in the case of ordinary offenses, the man who had served his term and who then tried to make good was given a fair chance, and of course this was equally true of the women. Every one who had studied the subject at all is only too well aware that the world offsets the readiness with which it condones a crime for which a man escapes punishment by its unforgiving relentlessness to the often far less guilty man who is punished, and who therefore has made his atonement. On the frontier, if the man honestly tried to behave himself, there was generally a disposition to give him fair play and a decent show. Several of the men I knew, and whom I particularly liked, 
came in this class. There was one such man in my regiment, a man who had served a term for robbery under arms, and who had atoned for it by many years of fine performance of duty. I put him in a high official position, and no man under me rendered better service to the state, nor was there any man whom, as soldier, as civil officer, as citizen, and as friend, I valued and respected, and now value and respect more. Now, I suppose some good people will gather from this that I favor men who commit crimes. I certainly do not favor them. I have not a particle of sympathy with the sentimentality, as I deem it, the mawkishness, which overflows with foolish pity for the criminal and cares not at all for the victim of the criminal. I am glad to see wrongdoers punished. The punishment is an absolute necessity from the standpoint of society, and I put the reformation of the criminal second to the welfare of society. But I do not desire to see the man or woman who has paid the penalty and who wishes to reform given a helping hand. Surely every one of us who knows his own heart must know that he too may stumble and should be anxious to help his brother or sister who has stumbled. When the criminal has been punished, if he then shows a sincere desire to lead a decent and upright life, he should be given the chance, he should be helped and not hindered, and if he makes good, he should receive that respect from others, which so often aids in creating self-respect, the most invaluable of all possessions. End of chapter 4